Hello, everybody. This is Barack Obama, and we've brought together some amazing young people from across the country, from 60 nations around the world, people of different backgrounds, different professions, but all of them are asking themselves, how can they make a difference and bring about change in their communities, in their countries, in the world? And we have Daniel Flynn, co-founder of Thank You, who's been doing some amazing entrepreneurial work, tying together some good business with uh, some good deeds. From the University of Sydney Business School, this is Sydney Business Insights, the podcast that explores the future of business. So that was Daniel Flynn, the co-founder and managing director of the social enterprise Thank You, being interviewed by President Obama. Daniel is one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs under the age of 30 and winner of the 2014 Victorian Young Australian of the Year. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for talking to us today. No worries. Great to be here. You were very young when you first came up with the idea of Thank You Water. Take me back a bit to the 19-year-old who started this. The 19-year-old who started this was actually not thinking of starting this, to be honest. I was project management in construction and I actually thought I'd one day build buildings and get into property development and I had a grandfather who was a developer and I don't know if it was in my blood or not, but that's where I was at at 19 and then I have this kind of moment that shifted everything. And I was doing some research for a uni assignment and I read a number that said 900 million people don't have access to clean water. And I thought, oh, that doesn't sound right. That sounds too big. And I click into it and to my shock, it's not just a real number, but four and a half thousand children die each day from waterborne disease. And here I am at 19, basically staring extreme poverty in the face. And I'm thinking, how do we live in a world that is so developed, yet we're so underdeveloped? And at that same time, I saw another number, which was the $50 billion spent on bottled water globally. Now, $130 billion, I think, is the latest number. And I look at that and go, well, that's extreme consumerism. And it's also the dumbest product on the planet. But you've got extreme poverty and extreme consumerism existing in the same world. And I just had this thought, like, well, that feels wrong. What if there was a way to bridge the two? What if you could launch products that helped end global poverty? And that's the beginning of kind of this roller coaster ride. It didn't quite work out the way you planned from the beginning. And you walk us through it a bit. Yeah, it didn't. To be honest, we didn't know what we were doing. We still don't really. And I say that because I think not knowing sometimes is actually a really interesting advantage because you don't know what you can't ask for. And our first meeting was with a big manufacturer. And that didn't go very well. They're saying you're up against the big brands and they're giving us the whole spiel on how the industry works. So it took us about five factories to find one guy who'd back us and ended up landing the largest deal we'd ever landed. It was, in fact, our first sales pitch. We landed a 50,000 bottle order in the first pitch. So now at 19, I'm thinking, this is easy. And we pitched and all we had was an A4 sheet of paper friended up of what the bottle would look like. And honestly, we hacked that. But we get the deal and I think I thought this would be a fairy tale ending and it wasn't. It just turned into a disaster. And for the next three years, we face a whole bunch of issues. And those who know our story know that the launch became a product recall due to a labeling issue. We re-relaunched and got into about 350 cafes and outlets. And then our factory didn't supply product for five weeks. And during those five weeks, we lose 300 of our 350 customers. And so it was a pretty dark moment, to be honest. I think we all stuck in there. And I say we, Justine, who was my girlfriend at the time, and Jared, my best mate, they're our co-founders, and we're still all together today. 
Jared and I aren't together, but Justine and I are married. <laughs> but that was a crushing moment a year in because the whole dream had just sort of failed, so we thought. But there were two retailers looking at the launch and looking at our whole concept, and we thought they were going to say yes. So we found a new factory, launched up here in Sydney with a new distributor, and they said you'll be in 2,000 stores in month one. Then they went bankrupt holding our product. So it was another disaster. The two retailers came back saying no, then both came out with their own bottle of water that went to funding water projects. So we had knockback, setback, knockback. And for three years, we literally couldn't get one national retail deal. So how come you stuck in there? How come you kept going? It's a really good question. I think there's probably a couple of layers to it. In fact, I look back thinking, man, we were 19, 20 years old, but we had a pretty deep connection with our purpose, our why. I don't think we jumped into it because of a brand or a product idea. We just thought this could change people's lives. And it kind of had this almost mission vibe to it. And every time we got knocked back, it was like, oh, it built this feeling of we're going to find a way. Now, I'll be honest, after three years, it was too much. But what had happened along the way is we'd visited some programs in Cambodia, in Kenya. We had had these moments where we met people and we were like, whoa, yeah, we'd only helped a few hundred people. But if everything we went through was for that one person in Cambodia, it felt worth it. So coming back home, it was like a different perspective. It was like, well, we've only helped a few hundred people. It was meant to be a few million. But if we can find a way to make that work, we can scale that moment we had. We can see that change play out to more and more families around the world. So it was our cause that drove us. But I don't think cause is enough. I think purpose is a better word because cause is part of our purpose. But I think for myself at 19, I saw something and I feel like to this day, I can't unsee it. And I saw this opportunity, which is global consumerism. Like it's just big and it exists. And I'm a consumer. I get it. Global poverty shouldn't exist. And I find it hard to unsee that. And I want to find a way to make it work. So at year three, we're a bit nervous. We're a bit discouraged, but there was a fight in us and it kind of plays out from there. So what did you do in year three? What did you experiment with? We've all heard of a petition before. We had this idea of taking it a step further because retailers had said to us simply, you don't have the money the big brands have. And for a lot of startups, in fact, most companies, that's often a reality. You don't have the budget of the incumbent or the big, big brands. And so we would say, well, yeah, but put the product on the shelf and it's going to sell. And they're like, no, 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 you can't prove that. We're like, well, if you put it on, we'll prove it. And it was this weird chicken and egg thing because we didn't have the money. So we thought, well, before we go to the next pitch, we can't take money in. Let's take awareness in. And so we launched a video on YouTube and then we asked people to upload a video or a post onto the 7-Eleven Facebook wall. Now, they're the largest convenience retailer in Australia at the time. And what happened is people started singing, dancing and rapping, uploading their videos and posts onto 7-Eleven's Facebook wall. And if you can imagine it, media were like, what? And so they start covering it and then more people are jumping on board. And it started out with a few of our friends and we knew them. And we're like, you need to do a post. And then there were strangers. Then there were people we never met. This thing grew and grew and grew. And the next meeting at 7-Eleven was a bit different. And they've come on board as a huge partner of Thank You. And in their stores alone, I were able to raise over a million dollars profit to helping fund water projects. So a really remarkable outcome after three years of setbacks and then us learning and going, well, let's never turn up to a meeting without awareness again. Let's change it. So what did the next big meeting you turned up to look like? Well, it's interesting because the natural progression from there is into supermarkets. 
and Coles and Woolworths in Australia have 70% market share. And they're known to be pretty tough to deal with. We were ambitious, but we had had a no from them for three years. And we continued to get those no's up until year five. So now for five years, even after being in 7-Eleven, we've got retailers that aren't backing us and won't even give us one chance. And so we launched a little video on YouTube. And this was our boldest one yet. And it said, hey, everybody, two weeks from today, we're presenting to Coles and Woolworths. Now they've said no for five years. But what they don't know is we've spent the last two years making a food range that funds food programs and a body care range that funds health and sanitation. And we want to take these 14 products to them in two weeks' time. We said today we're launching the Coles and Woolworths campaign. And essentially it was like the 7-Eleven campaign, but now playing the two biggest against each other. And it went viral. It kind of shocked us, the numbers. Actually, one of my favorite memories, other than just random people singing the coolest songs ever and recording them and posting them. So we had this moment where two helicopter pilots flew helicopters. So one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. And the helicopter said, Dear Coles, thank you for changing the world, in brackets, if you say yes. And we flew it over Melbourne and around the Coles head office for half an hour. And then the same up in Sydney at Bella Vista, around the head office for half an hour. And I think that was my favorite day because it worked. Five hours after the meeting, we had national ranging. But also, Peter and Jeff, the pilots, they flew for free. Because we pitched to them and our pitch was, this is our idea, but we have no money. And they're like... You guys are crazy. And I actually think people do back causes, but I think more so people back bold ideas. And that was the next big meeting. You're now in Coles and Woolworths. What's it like going up against some of the biggest companies in the world, players like Coca-Cola? It's fascinating. I'll say that. Coles and Woolworths have become good partners of ours, but I think we get a seat at the table if it's commercial. And what we have to do is we have to win in market. And so In our water category, we've got big competitors like the one you just mentioned. In our body care, we're up against huge multinationals. We just launched into nappies. We're up against some of the biggest nappy companies in the world. And so on every front at Thank You, there's like seven, eight, nine huge competitors. And we sit in our little office in Collingwood, about 50 of us. And some days we're like, yeah, wow, we've got a lot of team. Other days we're like, we do not have enough people. You know, we're up against each of them have thousands of staff and millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars. So often there is this feeling of, do we really stand a chance? Now we're optimists and we really believe in the impossible becoming possible, but there are some things that happen in the market, some levers that they can pull that do discourage you a bit because you're like, man, we can't do that. And there are quick levers, probably the most powerful in a store level is price. Big competition can drop its price pretty heavily and sustain a low price for a long amount of time. And for a new entrant, that will often lower your sales. And if your sales stay low enough for long enough, you'll lose the ranging in store. So we have right now 55 products on the market, but we would have lost in our history 20 plus products because they weren't staying up with the sales rates. And so it's a real competition. I'd almost say it's a fight. And literally every month you are on your toes. And that's a healthy thing. And I actually remember reading a quote once that said, it's not the big that eat the small, but it's the fast that eat the slow. And that for me gives me hope because we can't be big, but we can be fast. And I think that's been part of our success. The long-term success of Thank You 
that's a big question and it's going to take everything we've got to continue to have that speed and ability to scale our idea. How do you decide on what product ranges? You've got over 50 now. How do you decide what to go into next? You started with water and that was a clear choice because of the problem we were trying to solve. How do you decide? It's a question we get a bit because with a brand like Thank You, it's almost like, ah, where do you stop? And there's a part of us, all the co-founders, all of our team, that we don't stop. We're like, thank you this, thank you. Oh, we could do anything. Then there's this other side that goes, hang on, we need to do a few things. One, start with why. Why are we making a product? And so the why behind water began with the world water crisis. And in those same communities that we work in now in 20 developing countries, issues like maternal infant health, it's a big deal. Health and sanitation, food. And so in these communities, there are more needs than just water. And so for us, it was a natural progression to go, well, we want to fund maternal infant health. And from there we go, okay, so if we're funding maternal infant health, what would be the natural progression into our market? a product that would link in, we thought maybe baby food, for a few reasons we didn't go there, baby formula, a few more reasons we didn't go there, got to baby body care, and we thought, well, our body care range right now is uh, our hand washers number one in one of the supermarkets, but in I think the biggest supermarket in the country, we just overtook Dove's total business. So thank you body care versus Dove body care overtook it, which is mind blowing. So that's working. Baby body care is a progression and nappies was this other really interesting opportunity to us. So we're trying to marry up two things. One is the why, but two is the opportunity we see at that consumer level. Because if you don't get the consumer insight right, if you don't get the value proposition right and pick a gap in the market, you're stuffed. Cause doesn't work, which does surprise a few people, but we've launched oats before plain rolled oats. And back in those days, we thought, well, our oats are just as good as everyone else's oats and we're helping end world hunger, surely people will choose thank you. But they don't. They choose whatever the best price is and whatever the best value proposition is. And Oats taught us a big lesson, that it's about value add and about getting the consumer insight right. So we're looking kind of at both. So what did you get wrong with the Oats? I think we just believed that Coors might sell the product. Since then, there's these two rules that have appeared on our walls at the office. We got this from a good book. It says rule number one, make great product. Rule number two, never break rule one. And the asterisk on rule two says, never use a good cause to sell an average product. And the truth is the oats were kind of average. They were just oats. Whereas you pick some of our other products and the idea behind it is everything from the scent to the formula to the packaging is an experience that you want. And if we tap into enough of those consumer levers, hopefully we'll hook you on the product. And then the cause, well, that may bring your long-term commitment. So that's kind of our view because products like oats and even our water over the years has declined massively. It's no longer the biggest part of what we do. Why is that? We've always said bottled water is a silly product. So from day one, it's been bottled water is a silly product. If you're going to buy it, choose thank you. And we've kind of been known for that a little bit, but the market's changed. So the commoditization of water Right now in Australia, you can buy a 24-pack of 600ml bottles of water cheaper some days than we can make it. It's weird. It's like, well, why don't we just go pick it off the shelf and wrap our label on it? Like, what is going on here? And it's the system changing. So you have retailers that are willing to sell it at a loss leader, so below cost to get consumers to come in, and that just completely destroys market and value in a market. So we've experienced that. Strangely, the bottled water market has grown, but only in that bulk 
low price space. And I think for us to focus, we haven't put as much focus on our water. It is what started us, but man, have we got excited around our body care range, which at last read made up nearly 60% of our business and the launch of nappies. These are the things that are really working because they're more technical products. We like them because they're things that people need. You don't need bottled water. And yes, we still have it available. But at the same time, I think we are asking the tough questions that thank you. Like we've probably all heard the statement, if you don't disrupt yourself, someone else will. And we're now nine years in and we're looking going, we can't do what we've done for the last nine years and not actually ask the big questions and challenge ourselves and go, what if we flip this or drop that or change that? And what people will see from thank you over the next 12 to 18 months, I think will be quite surprising because they're like, whoa, that's bold. And it is bold because we know it's only bold moves that took us this far and it's only bold moves that will keep us going. So we're up for questioning everything. And, you know, water's in decline. If we were really, really passionate about bottled water, we'd probably find a way to make it work. But it's bottled water. At the end of the day, a lot of consumers are not buying bottled water anymore because of environmental concerns, because of the waste and so on. Is this something that you've asked yourselves whether this is a business you want to be in? Totally. Yeah. Bottled water for us is like the awkward cousin or like the part of you that's like, it's our history, but oh, it's bottled water. And here's what I love about it. And let's not take this sentence out of context, but here's what I love. I think bottled water is a mirror that's held up in front of us as citizens. And it's an ugly picture. It's like, oh, that's not good. But it's almost like the picture of extreme consumerism. So I like that's how we entered. But I think over time we've gone, is this a space we really want to keep growing and growing in? No, not really. It serves a small purpose because often water for people is the simplest way to understand thank you. Then they understand body care and nappies and beyond. So we think water still has a role, but we are looking at what's a better way to do it and a more sustainable way. And that's all part of our journey. Speaking of a better way to do it, how do you see the future of thank you? Are consumer preferences changing? You've grown very, very rapidly. Is that still something that you want to do? Do you see that as a fundamental part of your business? We do see growth as very fundamental because our formula is real simple. All of our profit goes to any extreme poverty. So the more profit we make, the more impact we make. And it's just so direct for us. And, you know, right now we've given $5.5 million. We've raised more than that, but given 5.5 and that's helped 755,000 people. That's a direct link. We need to and want to scale those numbers. And we believe that we should because it is possible there are other brands in the market that are much bigger. So we're very driven by that. But we do have to be careful. And one of the things we've talked a lot about at Thank You over the last year is three words, which is better before bigger. And we are really focusing in on not just the ambition of being bigger, but it's around better systems, processes, products. And better is an interesting word, but I can tell you right now, if our product isn't better in a year's time from the one you bought today, 90% of consumers won't buy it, even because of the cause. So the consumer expectations are changing from not just price, but quality, design, even through to how it gets to their home. Is the future going to the grocery store? Probably not. It may be part of it, it may not be. And I'll let others way more qualified than myself talk about the future of retail. But I do think it's changing. And at Thank You, we have to be on the front foot 
because we are essentially a product company and it only works if consumers buy in. So we want to be on that leading edge of contact with consumers. And I think that'll be the sustainability of our model. How do you see the role of technology? You've used technology for quite a few things, whether it's social media campaigns, whether it's improving your processes or creating some of these products. Where do you see the biggest role for technology next? It has been a huge part of our history. One of the more known things we've got is track your impact, where every product has its own unique tracker code. And if you log that on our website, we'll send you a report with GPS coordinates and photo proof and all that once the project's completed. So we've used technology to connect people. And I think simply the future technology is that it's about closer connection. Once upon a time, if I wanted food for dinner and I want a takeaway, I got to get in the car, I got to drive down the road, I got to get it. Now it's a very different experience. So many competitors now, and it's mind blowing to just think how small the world's becoming, how connected it's becoming. And there are heaps of negatives to that. And there's a lot of commentary on that. But I think in the space we're in, it creates a really remarkable opportunity to close the gap. Because when I was 19, I literally thought, oh, there's big problems in the world, but that's out there somewhere. But I think technology actually helps us realize, no, no, that's close. It's a couple of hour flight away. It is literally just that person, their story, that could have been me. We see refugees now running and fleeing and we're like, Oh, why are they in clothes like the ones I'm wearing? Why are they all holding phones? Because we're getting access to see the reality of humanity. And I think that's one of the silver linings on the growth in technology. How have you and how are you experimenting with new business practices, new products, new ways of pricing things, new ways of doing things? What role does experimentation play in your business? I think for any organization or group of leaders wanting to foster innovation, you have to be experimenting. And some of the experiments will work, some will fail. We're launching subscription nappies and that's cool. We'll see how that goes. We're always experimenting and that's part of our journey. That's how you learn. Our more recent experimentation was around price point. And we did something where we launched a book called Chapter One and it's a simple book. It's the first chapter of our story. And 100% of the profit from this book funds chapter two, which is the future of our story. And the premise of the book is our whole idea of giving all the profit is kind of nice. Well, it's a little naive <laughs> because you do need money to launch into new markets and new categories. And we always said, well, we don't want to change our model. So the book became this almost crowdfunding concept, but we took crowdfunding a bit further. So you buy the book and we say to you, you pay what you want. And this isn't just on our online store. This is in every airport retailer in Australia and New Zealand. So you walk into the store, Relay, Newslink or Watermark. You go up to the counter, chapter one, they will literally say to you, how much do you want to pay? And that is not a normal conversation at a retail level. The retailer challenges, they're like, no one will understand it. And we're just like, yeah, we get it. We get it. But just give us one month. And what you have to understand to this story is we backed ourselves in. We literally said, don't pay for the books up front. We'll give them to you. If they sell, then you pay us. So we took all the risk and we said one month of trading. And if that works, give us two. And if that works, give us three. Today we're at like month 22 and it's still working. But when Pay What You Want launched, we saw a huge online support, $360,000 in the first two hours. The next day we launch in stores and within one month we're at $1.44 million raised. Right now we're at 1.8, actually $1.9 million profit. And the least paid is 
about five cents. Actually, heaps of people did that. We joked, but it's actually true. We have their addresses <laughs> on our online store. People did that. And I'm like, cool, you tested that. But pay what you want was a bet on humanity, that people are more good than bad. And it has paid off. And what have you learned? Well, we've learned that people are good. So on average, we make more per book through pay what you want than if we sold it in a normal retail price. And the most paid, well, it was $5,000, then it became 7500 And the most recent, as of six weeks ago, was an online order for $50,000 for one book. Now, trust me, the book's not that good. But it's not a book. It's an idea that people are buying into. And for the retailers, well, here's the fascinating bit. So they weren't sure if it was going to work. We ended up winning last year, not their book innovation award, but the retail innovation award. We messed with the system, but as I was coming up to receive the award, the managing director gets up and he says to everyone, chapter one outsold every business book launch and was second only to our Harry Potter launch week. And I think that we experimented with price, which created a disruption in store. It forced people behind the counter to have to tell a story. We experimented with the book itself. In fact, if you open the book, it's printed in landscape. So it looks like it's printed the wrong way. And the idea is that if you're at a bookstore, you'll open that book and you'll be like, what? What's going on? No, 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 no. This is a misprint. And we messed with that system. And, and I, was, I was asked, how did we change the convention in books? And I literally said, we just hit rotate on the print file. And the system would say, well, hang on. There must be a reason that millions of books are printed the other way. You can't just change it. But we did. And it didn't cost us anything. And the payoff has been absolutely remarkable because now people read our book on an airplane or in a public space. And because they're holding the book essentially landscape, it cuts through. People will walk up to other people going, what's that book? What are you doing? I mean, as marketers, cut through is the hardest thing ever. But you have to experiment to get cut through. And some people are convinced the book is quicker to read. And I love those people. They're like, you know, iPads and emails are written in this format. And I'm like, yeah, we're not perfect at thank you, but we're not afraid to experiment. And I think when you land that, that's when you can cut through. What's your next experiment? Our next experiment is actually a big one. It's probably the scariest one for me and maybe other co-founders. Not because it's super technical, actually probably is, but we're launching thank you into a new country. So it's the first market outside of Australia to take thank you. Now, there would be a narrative that says, you guys have done pretty well in my country. It's a series of flukes and good wins and, you know, the Australian culture, blah, 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 and well done on your one country project. We think this idea should be much bigger. So New Zealand is the first test market for us outside of Australia and huge US brands test there from Nike to Google, Facebook, and a lot of consumer brands globally actually test in New Zealand. And so while some may say, oh, that's a very small country, actually from spending a, now two years there, it's a pretty remarkable country because stuff either works in that country or it fails. In Australia, we're big enough to sustain an average idea. But in New Zealand, there's only 4 million people. Average doesn't last. You can't run a company off average. So it's going to test us more than anything we've done. And I like that. But man, am I a little bit nervous because if it doesn't work there, an argument would be, wow, is that it? And uh, anyway, I don't need to think about that because we are throwing everything at it. And we believe that the New Zealand people will grab this and maybe take it further than the Aussies could. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I hope we can chat about that next time. Yeah, me too. Thank you for talking to us today. Hey, thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to Sydney Business Insights, the University of Sydney Business School podcast about the future of business. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Libsyn, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can visit us at sbi.sydney.edu.au and hear our entire podcast archive, read articles, and watch video content that explore the future of business.